Good morning, Valley Bible Church. I'm so thrilled to be here with you today to open the scriptures here with you at our church service online. Let me just say, I, there, nothing replaces being together in the same place with God's people. But you know what? COVID cannot limit Christ's church. Uh, we are still Christ's church no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, because we still have Jesus, we still have his word, we still have the spirit, we still have a witness to this watching world, and so not for one second have we ceased to be the church, even when we're unable to meet together. But I am so excited to be here with you this morning. In our series that we've been going through from the Gospel of John in the New Testament, uh, right now we've been going through John chapter 5, 6, and 7, a series called Miraculous Conflict. Miraculous conflict. Jesus doing miracles, Jesus doing signs, but then instead of seeing a widespread acceptance of Jesus, we're seeing that Jesus is experiencing a lot of conflict. And in fact, last week, Pastor Paul Crandall, uh, he shared a sermon with us, uh, and, and many of the disciples that were following Jesus, they became disappointed with what Jesus was offering them. And we see a really, really significant moment in the ministry of Jesus that I, I just want to have a quick refresher about before we dig into this, the passage that we have this morning. And in John chapter 66, it says, uh, John chapter 6, verse 66, excuse me, it says, after this, after the words that Jesus said, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And, and we saw last week that Jesus turns to the 12, those that were closest to him, and he says, don't you want to go away too? And I love Peter's confession. He says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And so that's the setup for us as we dig into John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We see that at that moment, six months prior actually, because it was around the time of Passover, and now Jesus, his, his popularity is plummeting. Uh, his, his poles are, are suffering. Many people are turning away and walking away from him. And that introduces us to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. And, and, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's going on here? It's not just in John's gospel that we see this, but we see this in the other gospels as well. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the narratives about the ministry and life of Jesus, we see that there are these, these moments that happen where you think he's at the peak of his influence. And then all of a sudden, many people start to reject him and to turn away from him. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we come into chapter 7 now, if many people are walk, walking away from him, Jesus, what's next? Well, what's next? I mean, you're the son of God. You're the, the special anointed one from God, the Messiah that's come down from heaven. I mean, come on, we've got to do something here to gain some more momentum. Maybe you need to get back on the campaign trail again to recover some of the losses that you've been experiencing. But you see, this wasn't just an issue just for Jesus in his time. This has been an issue for all of us who follow Jesus for the church for 2,000 years. The church has been working for 2,000 years under this dilemma. People reject Jesus. And we ask ourselves these questions. Why aren't more people accepting and obeying Jesus' commands? I mean, 
He's a great guy. He's, he's the son of God. I mean, his teaching is absolutely remarkable, but we can't seem to keep him on top in our world and in our culture. And when the trends of, of our culture start to flow against us, it seems like we're constantly swimming upstream, those that are followers of Jesus. And it seems like there's no end in sight, but how does that make us feel? How does it make you feel this morning? Do you feel like as a follower of Jesus that you're sometimes swimming upstream? How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel afraid? I don't know what to do. It seems like all the trends are going against me and I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. Maybe you're afraid to stand up for the righteousness of Jesus uh, in your neighborhood or in your workplace or even with family members. Uh, Maybe you feel frustrated. Maybe you just get really angry Why is the world so messed up? Don't they see how wonderful Jesus is and his plan and his ways are so much better than ours? And so we we get frustrated and we fight back against these trends at times. And and when our hopes and dreams of seeing Jesus have the the primary place in our world, when, when that dream starts to slip through our fingers like sand, we feel tempted to just clutch a little bit tighter No, I don't want to let this go. I I want this world to be a place where Jesus is honored everywhere, where his name is spoken, where his righteousness is lived out, where his commands are honored. But the tighter we seem to try and hold on to that dream, the sand just seems to slip through our fingers a little bit faster. How can we maintain having Jesus at the highest point? Will it take a crusade? Will it take a... An election? Will it take a campaign? Uh, What can we do? And unfortunately in church history, we've seen that that many times we've tried to take it back by force. Turn to Jesus or you're cast out or excommunicated or even worse, we'll we'll put you to death. Is that the the method of, of Jesus? You know, do we fight fire with fire? As followers of Jesus, do we turn to the the methods of this world to say, we've got to get Jesus back on top? And so that's what we're going to see from John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. But before we do, I'd like to just kind of hopefully give us just a little bit of a visual picture of what this looks like. Trying to adopt the world's methods and the plan of God. Trying to mix the world's agenda with God's plan. And that's going to bring us to our big idea this morning. You see what I've got here are just a couple of little jars here. And, and you may be able to see it, I'm not sure. But I've got here a jar of water. And uh, if you've taken any science in school, you're going to know that this, this jar of oil is not going to mix very well with this jar of water. In fact, they won't mix at all. These two substances, uh, their nature is so different that they don't mix together. In fact, they stay separated. That's, that's the property of these two things. And so I'm just going to pour some oil in here. And, uh, you know, I'm going to do my best here to see if we can mix these two together. So I've got some regular old olive oil. And I've got some water. And, and if you could see there, the oil is settling at the top and you've got the water at the bottom. But you think, well, hey, maybe if I shake it up and get real aggressive, maybe it'll, it'll separate out. But as you see in just a few moments you're going to see that the water and the oil are going to separate. And that's our big idea this morning. As we think about this today, this, 
this idea of what do we do, I got to set this over to the side, what do we do when things don't go our way? How do we get Jesus back on top of the landscape of our culture and of our world? Well, here's our big idea today. We're going to see it from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and it's this. God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. They just don't mix. They don't mix together. Well, how do we get there? Let's, let's take a look at John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13 together. Follow along as I read aloud. It says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is our passage this morning. And we're going to see that God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. Well, it says here about six months after this encounter that we saw last week, a, a long time, we spent a long time in John chapter 6 seeing some really important conversations that Jesus had with the crowds. They were missing the point that Jesus was trying to give to them. Well, about six months later, we have the Feast of Booths coming up. It says here uh, in, in John chapter 7, verse 2, it says the Jews' feast of booths. This would have been happening in early October. Uh, in fact, uh, this year in 2020, the Feast of Booths for the Jewish people uh, lasted from October 2nd to October 9th. So we just got done celebrating it, in fact. Uh, but where do we get this from? What is this Feast of Booths? This is, was an extremely important time, and, and John's including it in this passage because he wants us to get an idea of what was happening culturally at this time. The Feast of Booths, you could find that in Exodus chapter 23 and also Leviticus chapter 23. And th this Feast of Booths or this Feast of Ingathering, it was one of three annual feasts, including Passover and including also uh, Pentecost, where the Israelite males were to appear before the sanctuary. So you would have all the males, all the Jewish males uh, living in Judea and living in Galilee at the time of Christ, they would have had to go to the sanctuary at the temple in Jerusalem. So it was an extremely important. If you only do this three times, and this is one of three, this makes this feast very, very important. Well, what was the Feast of Booths all about? Initially, it was called in-gathering, and, and what it was, it was uh, harvest time, similar to what we celebrate this time of year in October. We're celebrating the harvest. We have wine country uh, not too far away, and it's that time of year where they're bringing in those grapes to make wine, and so you've got the fruits that they're celebrating. Uh, 
grapes and figs and, and all kinds of fruits. And, and what they're called to do is to bring their first fruits, the first and best fruits, to bring them to the Lord as an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. And so uh, this feast was then to celebrate God's goodness of providing for his people. Well, not only that, in Leviticus, we see that it also was called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And what they were called to do, according to the law, was that they were to take palm branches and sticks and stuff and make these little booths that they were supposed to live in for seven days. Now, that may sound strange to you, but God had a purpose in having his people live in these booths for about a week in this time of October. And the reason was that so that they would remember that they lived in tents generations before when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt when they were living in the wilderness. You see, when they lived in these tents in, in the desert, God provided for them. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water from the ground. And so when they came to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this feast of booths, it was a time to remember. And in fact, Leviticus 23, 43 says, your generations in the future may know that the Lord made the people of Israel dwell in booths when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and that he alone was their God. It was a constant reminder of the exodus. It was a constant reminder of God's great power to deliver his people out of slavery. Even as they dwelt in the wilderness for so long, he protected them and he provided for them. And as a statute for generations to come, they would remember that God was their deliverer. Well, during the time of Jesus, it had that significance, but it also had a second significance. You see, the people felt that just as they were enslaved in Egypt hundreds of years before, so now also they felt enslaved even though they were in their own land. You see, they didn't get to rule over themselves. In fact, a foreign nation was ruling over them. Even though they were living in the land that God had promised them, there was another ruler that was over them. It was the Romans. The Romans ruled over them and they were, they were feeling enslaved and they were anticipating that God would send his promised anointed one to come and rule and, and redeem them and rescue them from the tyranny of this Roman, Roman government that was ruling over them. And so not only was this feast a time to look back and remember what God had done, it was a time of anticipation. When is the anointed one going to come? When is the Messiah that we long for going to come to set us free, to deliver us politically, to deliver us socially? And so now we have this scene set up, this feast that's coming. You see, whenever the Feast of Booths would come around, it was Messiah season. It was political revolution season. It was time to say, is this the year that God is going to send his anointed one to deliver us from the rule of the Romans? Now was the perfect time. I mean, talk about a great time for Jesus to get back on top, for him to show up doing his signs and doing his miracles to say, I am the one that you're anticipating. It was Messiah season. It was political revolution season. And so we see that's the setup that John gives us in John chapter 7, verse 2. And so his brothers come to him. His brothers say, hey, don't you get it, Jesus? You're doing all these signs way tucked up here in the wilderness, uh, in Galilee, in the countryside. Why don't you go to the center of our world? Go to Jerusalem and show these signs so that everyone would see you are the one. You're the one that's going to give us all the political 
rule and the power and the authority back to our people, to the Jewish people. It's Messiah season. It's political revolution season. Jesus, go get him. But we see that Jesus doesn't have that agenda. Jesus has a different agenda. And we see the world's agenda here. And so what we're going to see is that God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. But before we get to God's plan, let's take a look at the world's agenda. How do we see the world's agenda here in these verses? Well, we see the world's agenda in two ways. And, this, and you can see, look across our culture today. You see that there's predominantly two responses to Jesus. Either they want to kill him and get him out of here, or they want to crown him as their king to fulfill their agenda. Well, this first response, the world's agenda. First, you had some people that wanted to kill him. In, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. What? Who wanted to kill him? The Jews. What does that mean? Well, John uses this term around 70 times, and most of the time it's referred to the Jewish religious leaders, especially the chief priests over the temple in Jerusalem and the influential leaders of the synagogue called the Pharisees. And these guys, they did not like Jesus because he was challenging their authority and they wanted to see him killed. Well, why did they want to see him killed? In, in John chapter 5, verse 18, we actually given the answer to that. Jesus, after he heals a man who was begging and who was paralyzed, Jesus heals this man. But the problem with the Jewish leaders is they don't like what Jesus did because he did it on the Sabbath. He did it on the day that was most set apart and holy in the people's eyes that said, we get the most control of you on this day because this is our religious high holy holiday. And you can't do these kinds of things, Jesus. And so it says in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. One, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath according to their laws, human laws, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So we see several chapters before that these guys, these Jewish leaders, they are out to kill him. And they wanted to kill him because they didn't like his identity and they didn't like his authority. He was a threat to their self-righteousness and their control over the temple and over the people. Well, how did they plan to do it? Well, it says in verse 11, they start asking the people during this Messiah season at the Feast of Booze, they think, okay, now's the time. Certainly he's going to show up here. Where is he? Where is he? And they're looking for him and they can't find him. So this is the trap that they're trying to set Jesus in. They think for sure he's going to show up and proclaim himself to be Messiah. And right at that moment, we're going to catch him. So we have these people, the world's agenda, first of all, is they want to get rid of Jesus. We see that all over the world today. People that just don't want the authority of Jesus in their lives. They love their own self-righteousness. They love their own plans. And they say, Jesus, get out of here. We know better than you do. So that was the first agenda of the world. There were some that wanted to get rid of Jesus. But there were also those that wanted to make him king. And this one is, is kind of subtle because you think to yourself, well, isn't he a king? He sure is. But what they wanted to do is they wanted him to make him the king of this world. They wanted to make him the king over the structures that humanity had built rather than being king over all creation as God and Lord over all creation. 
And so we see that in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it says, His brothers said to him. Now, now Jesus had some brothers, and, and we see this word here in the Greek. It could include brothers and sisters. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, Jesus born of the Virgin Mary, that they didn't come together and have other children. So that's, that's who we're talking about here. And so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Go to the center of the action, Jesus, that your disciples, those that have heard about you down there, also may see the works that you're doing up here in Galilee. For no one does these things in secret if he seeks to be known openly or boldly. Don't go around doing it in secret. Go down there boldly, openly, in front of these people. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus, this is your chance. The world is going to love you when you talk about how you're going to deliver people from the rule of the Romans. Be the political king that you should be. Go down there and do it. They say no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Jesus, you're doing this up here in Galilee. You need to go to the center of the action. You need to have the center place in the political realm. They say, show yourself to the world. Jesus, it's Messiah season. It's political revolution season. Go get back on top. This is your opportunity to have the campaign and to have the debates with the Jewish leaders to show them who is truly on top. But the irony of all this, those that wanted to make him their political ruler is this. And in verse 5 it says, not even his brothers believed in him. See, John has been showing us through the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus that Jesus didn't come to be our political king. He didn't come to just make this world a little bit better for our own pleasure. He came to do something much greater than that. He came to cure us from the greatest problem that we have in our hearts, which is sin, and to give us eternal life. And so John says, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, they believed some things about him. Those things were totally off course from the plan of God. This is the world's agenda. Some wanted to kill him. Some wanted him to be their political king. But both of them reflected, not God's plan, but the world's agenda. What's Jesus' response to this? We get to see God's plan now. God's plan and the world's agenda that are like oil and water. They just don't mix. So what's Jesus' response to his brothers? What's the mission of Jesus? And what we see here in, in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8 is that Jesus is contrasting these two things, this, this oil and this water. He's saying, look, you don't understand. I'm following God's plan and it does not mix with the world's agenda. Let's take a look at this. It first says that uh, in verse, in verse uh, 6, he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. He's making a comparison here between their time and his time. He says, hey, your time is any time. The world is always willing to accept you. You're going with all the reasons of the world's agenda. And so when you show up, it's no problem at all. You're, you're not following God's plan. You're following your own plans. And so whatever time is right for you, you can just go. You're not waiting 
on the Lord. You're not waiting on our Heavenly Father. You're not waiting on God to give us the direction of where we need to go. So I can't go with you right now. For you, any time is good. But I have a different time. You see, Jesus is saying, my time is not determined by you. It's not even fully determined by me, but it's determined by my Father. You see, back in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, he wasn't here to do his own will. He wasn't here to do the will of his brothers. He wasn't here to do the will of anybody else. He was here to do the will of his Father. What is that will? You see, God had a special hour designed for Jesus. And Jesus talks about this. Back in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother is there and she says, Hey, Jesus, you know what? The wedding, the bride and the groom and those that are throwing this party, they ran out of wine. Why don't you do something about it? And he says, Woman, don't you know that my hour is not yet here? I have an hour where I'm going to show exactly who I am. But he said, it's not now. See, Jesus was following the plan of the Father. In John chapter 7, verse 30, we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks, Jesus, again, it says, they were seeking to arrest him, the Jewish leaders, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. You see, Jesus was going according to the schedule and the plan that God had given him. And so even though they wanted to arrest him, Jesus gets out of there and God wouldn't allow it. Why? Because God has a plan. God has a plan and it does not mix with the world's agenda. Well, what is this hour that, that is so special for Jesus? He knows his time, this opportunity to go to the Feast of Booths is not there yet because he's got a special hour when God is going to tell him to say, hey, now I want to reveal you to the world and what are they gonna do to you? We're gonna see that in a moment. But what was this hour all about? If you have a Bible, turn over to John chapter 17, verse one, and, and I think we're gonna show it on the screen here for you, but it says this. In John 17, verse one, what is this hour that Jesus is working toward? It says in John 17, one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Jesus, after he had completed all the mission that he was called to, he said, Father, the hour's here, and I'm asking, would you glorify me? Glorify me. And what was that path to glory? It wasn't to be placed as the political king over the Romans there in Jerusalem and to give all the Jewish people political freedom. No, that path to glory was a path that was about to take him to the cross, to the place where he would purchase eternal life for his people. And so Jesus is contrasting. He's saying, just like oil and water don't mix, my time and your time, he tells his brothers, they just don't mix. They just don't mix. I'm not going according to the world's agenda. I'm following God's plan. When not only does he contrast his time and the time of his brothers, but he also says this in verse seven, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now we're contrasting the acceptance from the world. He says the world can't hate you because everything that you're saying probably will go right along with what they want so desperately. 
There are those that want to kill me, and I'm sure that they would love to hear that, uh, that you're bringing me along so that they can capture me. Or there are those that would say, yes, he's come. Here's the king. He's going to deliver us from all of this tyranny and all of this slavery. And Jesus says, that's, that's not going to be my acceptance because that's not how I'm going to go. You see, the irony is that his brothers have political aspirations for Jesus. And they, they think that if he would just go and meet their expectations for who Messiah, for who the anointed one ought to be, that the world is just going to love him. Jesus, if you go and just do what they want you to do, they're going to love you because you're going to set us all free and you're going to kick those Romans out of our land. However, Jesus knows that that's not going to be his reception. Because God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. You see, God's plan wasn't for a political revolution. His plan wasn't for a campaign. It was a spiritual revolution. A spiritual revolution. One that included testifying to the world about its works, that they were evil. That's what it says in verse 7. He says, the world hates me because part of my mission is to bring a spiritual revolution. And the first thing that people need to hear about this spiritual need that they have is that your works are evil. Just his very presence, his righteousness, his peace, his justice, his goodness, it just rubbed people the wrong way. Not because there was anything wrong with Jesus. He had no flaws, but because when he was around, they saw their own sinfulness. We see this back in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, when John, the gospel writer, he's, he's giving us a clue and giving us an indication. What is this mission of Jesus? What is it all about? He writes in John 3, 19 to 20, this is the judgment that light has come into the world in the presence of Jesus, is what he means there. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You see, Jesus, he knows that God's plan doesn't mean that he's going to be widely accepted. It means that when he comes to those that love the darkness and hate the light, they're going to hate him too. And so he says, the, the world cannot hate you, but it, it hates me. What's his response is his response to say, forget them, I'm not going to the feast, they hate me, I don't want to have any part to do with them, and so I'm just staying isolated up here where I can stay away from all of them. No, 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 it's not what he's saying. He's saying, my time is coming, it's not here yet. But for you, any time works because nobody hates you, but they hate me because of the mission that I was sent on. Not to give them a political revolution, not to pamper their self-righteousness, but through my goodness and through the eternal life that I offer, it's to show them that their works are evil. That's why people hate Jesus. I mean, when you, when you think about how wonderful he is, you just think to yourself, how can anybody hate this man? But when you see his ministry, and you see the words that he speaks, you realize he didn't come just to give us a Band-Aid. He came to give us a new heart. Sometimes that hurts because we see how sinful we are, and it's convicting. So we see that, that Jesus is telling his brothers, look, you, you, you're, you're going according to the world's agenda. <laughs> I'm trying to follow God's plan here. 
My time to go to this feast right now is not right because I'm waiting for the Father to tell me when and to tell me how. Why? Because God's plan and the world's agenda is like oil and water. They just do not mix. So what happens? We see in verses 9 and 10 that the brothers go up to the feast and then finally Jesus does go up to the feast when the time is right. He goes, and in the manner and the timing that God wants him to go him go in. He doesn't go up openly. He doesn't go up uh, in a way that says, hey, everybody, I'm here. But he goes privately and quietly. Here's the thing that's interesting to see. Just six months later, and you may think to yourself, Jesus, why are you acting so afraid? Why are you ducking and dodging the confrontation that you know is going to come? Jesus isn't afraid. He's following the Father's plan. And we know that he's not afraid because six months later, on the following Passover, the following spring after this feast, we do see Jesus enter Jerusalem as a conquering king on a donkey in the triumphal entry. And what happens to him? The world hates him and they put him on a cross. But now is not the time for that just yet. So Jesus goes according to God's plan and we see that the world truly does hate him. So what are we to conclude about all this? What are we to take from, from this passage of Scripture today? It's, it's kind of a short passage, kind of a simple passage, but, but what are we to do about this? Well, we see that, that Jesus isn't seizing the opportunity to get his poll numbers up. He's not seizing the opportunity to take the prime place in the culture. And it's frustrating to his brothers. They, they don't believe in him. They don't understand the mission for which he was sent. And it comes back to our tension this morning. What do we do when we feel like we want to put Jesus back on top? We want him back on top in our country. We want him back on top in, in our culture. We want him back on top in this world, but it feels like we're just swimming upstream. And so we think to ourselves, well, well, maybe an election will solve all of that. Maybe if we band together, we could vote Jesus back into office. You know, maybe if we, if we get together and we have enough crusades and we have enough gatherings together and if we pray really, really hard and if we work really, really hard and, and beat people over the head over and over again, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, maybe the world will finally accept him and love him. And maybe Jesus will give us what we really, really want. And that's to be on top, to have the prime place. But as we've seen from this text today, God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. You see, when we try and use the world's methods, we're going to find that we're just swimming upstream and it gets harder and harder and harder and we clench our fists tighter and tighter and tighter and we get more afraid and we get more frustrated and we think to ourselves, what in the world is going on here? Jesus, why don't you take the prime place in our world? And his message to us, if we could put ourselves in the shoes of, or the sandals of Jesus' brothers, he would tell us, look, church, God's plan and the world's agenda, they're like oil and water. Don't try and force me into a, an agenda that the world would try to achieve. I'm on God's timing. I'm on God's timing. So how do we handle this? 
How do we handle living in this tension? Jesus, we want you to have the prime place. We feel like we're swimming upstream. We know that nothing of of the methods of this world will solve the problems to get Jesus back on top. What is, as followers of Jesus, what is he calling us to do then? Like, what's our response then? When we hear this from Jesus, when we hear him say, my time has not yet come and the world hates me, what are we supposed to do about this as followers of Jesus? What's God's plan for us? Well, I think we follow Jesus in this way. We hold something in balance that he held in balance. Jesus had an honest pessimism about the world, but he also had a courageous optimism about God's plan. Jesus had an honest pessimism about the world. He saw it for what it was, but yet he had a courageous optimism about God's plan. Let's take a look at that. What does that mean? John chapter 15. Remember, Jesus told his brothers, hey, the world hates me. Well, what did he tell his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21? He says this, if the world hates you, disciples, know that it it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus has such an honest pessimism about the response to the world. He knows, look guys, I've been out here and the world hates me. They hate me because they know that my words expose their evil deeds. And if you're going to be my follower, it would be helpful to know that when you go out there, you're going to know that Jesus is not always going to have the prime place. You're going to know that, that he's not going to be able to take over the political scene. That's not his agenda. That's not God's plan. So just have an honest pessimism about it. And as followers of Jesus, when we see him speak these words to his friends and we look back and remember, this is exactly what he said to his brothers. The world's going to hate me. And guess what? If you're going to follow me, they're going to hate you too. Then as a church, we, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that they hate Jesus and that they may hate us too. And instead of clenching our fists and getting frustrated and and trying to clench tighter and say, no, we're not going to let the power and the prime place and the highest seat go, we're, we're willing to say, you know what? You may hate us, but just as Jesus came, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so we as followers of Jesus, we don't clench our fists, we don't get afraid, we don't, we don't get frustrated, but we say we have an honest pessimism. We know that you may hate us on account of Jesus, but we love you. We love the world. We lay down our lives for them. We speak good news to them. If they throw rocks at us, we bless them. We love them. Remember the words of Jesus, we love our enemies. We love those who persecute and hate us. So one way we can understand how to live in this world where God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water, first perspective to have is to have some honest pessimism about the world knowing that they will hate us. 
Now, it doesn't end there because that would be a really depressing story, right? Not only does Jesus have an honest pessimism, but he balances that with a courageous optimism about God's plan. A courageous optimism about God's plan. Take a look at John chapter 16, verses 32 to 33. I love this. He says, behold, the hour is coming. There it is again, God's plan. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, uh-oh, wait, what? <laughs> There's that pessimism. You're going to be scattered, right? Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. Listen to Jesus' words now. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Not frustration, not fear, not clenching of the fist to try and hold on to the power and the comfort, but he says, no, I'm gonna give you something better. I've said these words so that you may have peace. Well, where does that peace come from, Jesus? He goes on, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have trials. There's that honest pessimism, but listen to this. Here's the courageous optimism, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, this is the beauty of Jesus. He, he's not here to be our political king. He's here to be the king over all creation and to give each one of his followers, those who repent and receive him, to give them eternal life. Not in a kingdom that will fade away, not in a kingdom that depends on elections and votes, but in a kingdom where righteousness and justice and peace rules over all of creation. And he says, I'm inviting you to that. And through my death and resurrection, I have won the victory. I have overcome the world. An honest pessimism is balanced by a courageous optimism. And John latched on to that. He, he, he remembered those words. Indeed, he, he includes them here in John chapter 16. But he also writes these words to a church in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to this. Listen to this courageous optimism. He says, little children, you're, oh, you, have, you are from God and have overcome them. Who is them? Those that are anti-Christ, against Christ. Those who are of the world and hate Jesus and hate his people. You have overcome them for he who is in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise be to Jesus. We can have an honest pessimism about what we may face, but we've got a courageous optimism that says, Jesus has overcome the world and he's living in me. He's living in me and he's living in every follower of Jesus Christ. John also says in 1 John 5, 4, he says, For everyone who's been born of God, everyone who's been born from above, everyone who's, been, who's received Jesus and has been born, born by His Spirit, they overcome the world. Well, how do we do that? This is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is? is the Son of God. Friend, I'm here to tell you today because Jesus has said it in his word. He said, if you believe in me, you are an overcomer. You can have an honest pessimism about this world. They may hate you. They, you may suffer at their hands. They may persecute you. But you can have courageous optimism because I've overcome the world. What a, what a message from Jesus. You see, God's plan and the world's agenda 
They may be like oil and water, but we don't have to fear anything. We belong to the one who is the victor and who's overcome the world. Well, what are our next steps? Well, I, I think this message, <laughs> this passage, and I, I don't know that we planned it this way, but God is so good in his providence. He's, he's given us this text today, less than two weeks until election day. And I know for many of us, we're not sure what to do. Many of us aren't sure how to vote. Uh, many of us are unsure about what the results will be. Uh, there are all kinds of propositions and candidates, and certainly President of the United States is, is absolutely humongous, right? And I'm not here to tell you how to vote, because I think we heard today that the world's agenda and God's plan are like oil and water. To try and get our, our cause out there merely through voting, uh, and I'm encouraging you to vote, but, but to get our agenda across merely through voting, it's, we got to have some opti- honest pessimism about it. The world hates Jesus, and the world's going to hate us too. But we can also have a courageous optimism. Followers of Jesus should not be surprised that God's plan and the world's agenda are like oil and water. We shouldn't be surprised at those who respond to Jesus the way the world of his time did. Some wanted him to be their political hero. Others wanted to get rid of him. Neither perspective reflect God's plan. But we know that just by his mere presence, many people will be offended. By your presence, because you're a follower of Jesus, many people may be offended. Some will see his purity, his justice, and authority as a threat to their desire to be their own bosses. While others may get frustrated when Jesus doesn't meet their political expectations. We've got to have that honest pessimism. Some are living to see his kingdom rule over our government here and now. Those are the ones that clench their fists so tightly. But us followers of Jesus, when we listen to his words and allow him to speak before we speak, we can see and we can live with a perspective that has the balance that reflects Jesus with honest pessimism about how the world may see us, but a courageous optimism that Jesus has overcome the world and he is the one who calls his followers to overcome. We know that the world will hate Jesus and his followers either because they do too much to challenge their authority or too little to give them what they want. But on the other side of the coin, we will not fret, we will not fear, because Jesus has overcome the world. And if you, if you agree with that here right now, and if you're listening, say amen. Jesus has overcome the world. Through his death and resurrection, he's purchased for us admission into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our hopes don't rest with what happens on election day. Today is the day of salvation, amen? We don't have to be afraid or frustrated during election season because it's reconciliation season. It's time to get right with God season. And there's nothing that can happen to us in this world that can threaten that hope. We have a courageous optimism. We can stand through any trouble because we know that our Lord and King has won the victory. This is the message we must receive from Jesus and live out as election day approaches. God's plan and the world's agenda, they're like oil and water. But Jesus is on his throne, and we have nothing to fear. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith in Jesus. So I want to encourage you today, follower of Jesus, as we get closer, fix your eyes on Jesus. Live in the balance that he told his followers to live in. Have an honest pessimism, knowing that the world will hate him, and the world will hate us. We will love them in return, but we also live with a courageous optimism 
Jesus has overcome the world and he's called us into his victorious kingdom. I want to leave you with, with one other thing. For those that may be examining the claims of Jesus, if you're listening today and, and you're undecided about Jesus, will he get your vote, right? <laughs> if you're still undecided about Jesus, I want to ask you, why are you looking to Jesus? Are, are you looking for him to come and kind of, you know, make your kingdom a little bit better, a little bit grander? Are you coming to him with your own agenda and your own desires that you hope he will fulfill for you? Uh, You may be coming to him with your agenda saying, Jesus, make my kingdom humongous and make it big, right? Give me the power and authority over my own life. Help me get control back over my life. But, But you have to know that what we heard today and what we saw from Jesus' words himself is that God's plan and and your agenda, they're like oil and water. They can't mix. God has a plan for you and you may have an agenda, but those two just cannot mix. He didn't come to make your world better, he came to invite you into his. You may have a laundry list of needs you you want to bring to him, but in the end, they're merely band-aids for your problem. Don't try to get Jesus to build your kingdom up. He's inviting you today to enter into his kingdom. He's inviting you today to to be a part of this this people that may feel like we're swimming upstream for now, but, but we're a part of the overcomers the ones who've won the victory because we are not trusting in a kingdom today. We're looking for his kingdom tomorrow, an eternal kingdom that will have no end with perfect peace and righteousness and justice and beauty. Once you enter into his kingdom today, turn from your sin, confess it to him, receive him as the king and Lord of your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we don't have to fret, we don't have to fear as election day comes. I know for me, Father, I, I often get weary in voting, and I'm going to do it, Father, because I believe it's a, it's a good act of stewardship, what you've given to us. But, Father, it gets discouraging sometimes when we vote and, and we know that things don't go the way that we plan for them to go. Father, many of us feel afraid or feel frustrated as, as we get into this election season because we want Jesus to have a prime place over this world and over this culture. Father, I pray that you'd help us not to seek to put Jesus in his place according to the world's agenda, but that we would submit to your plan. I pray that we would trust in the timing of Jesus. I pray that we would have that balance that he told his followers to have, to have an honest and humble pessimism about how the world may look at us, but yet a courageous optimism in the victory that Jesus has won. I I pray that those that watch us who are followers of Jesus during this election season, I pray that they would see a people that are loving and faithful and courageous and sacrificial and full of hope. And Father, for the one or, or two or more that may be watching or listening here today, I pray, Father, that if they feel that collision of God's plan and their agenda and it doesn't mix it's like oil and water i pray that you'd call them today right now that they would say lord i lay down my agenda i want to be a part of your plan i want to receive jesus as my king and and savior and lord i pray that they would do it right now father they'd call upon the name of jesus that they wouldn't try and force him into their kingdom but they say lord jesus would you allow me to enter into yours I pray that you would do it. Draw these people to yourselves. 
We ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, church family, we love you so much. Thanks for joining us today, and and I pray that uh, you would have a wonderful time as you look to King Jesus, the one who has allowed us to be overcomers with him through faith in him. We'll see you next time.